God, you're good, and we thank you for your goodness. Um, help us tonight to wrap our minds around the, the concept that, that you have uh, laid before us here in the scriptures. And um, God, just, just do work on our hearts. We know that your, your word is faithful to um, just to pierce our hearts and, and to convict us and to um, ultimately point us to you. And so that's what we ask you to do tonight in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 4. Um, if you are new here, we are going through the book of Galatians pretty much this entire semester. Uh, we'll wrap that up in November, and then uh, Mr. Joe Hatch is going to teach in here in December, and then uh, Derek Hartman is going to be teaching next door, and it's going to be a fun month, so you, you'll want to be here for that. Um, already spoke with Joe a little bit about what he's cooking up, and you know if it comes from the mind of Joe, it's going uh, to be good. So, all right, um, maybe he'll share about his Ireland trip, I don't know. But Galatians chapter 4, that's where we've been, uh, that's where we are, and we've kind of walked through the entire book. Um, you know the highlights if you've been here, really that Paul paints the picture that the gospel, um, the means of salvation, the way we come into um, the family of God is, is really just Jesus. Uh, it's not Jesus plus works. It's not Jesus plus how we look. It's not Jesus plus the things we do. It's not coming to church. It's not um, doing all these different service activities. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then we saw that um, the, the function of the law was to point, uh, to point out our sin, to diagnose our sin. Uh, but that the law can't save us. So if you're coming here, um, if you're doing good things to get approval with God, it's never going to work for you. And we saw that the only thing that, that does save us is Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And then, uh, and then we talked about sanctification. How do we get better in the Christian life? And we talked about the fact that there is effort involved. There, there are things that we do, but it's all driven by grace. We understand, God, I, I can't do this, so I need you to help me. I need you to empower me to live for you. I want to live for you. He changes our hearts. So we talked about that. Last week, we reached really what I feel is the climax of the book of Galatians. We talked about adoption, the fact that God not only justifies us by faith alone, so he makes us right, he declares us righteous because of Christ, but he also adopts us into the family. He brings us into the family. We talked at length about how that changes everything. The, the way that you and I think about God, the way we relate to him, the way we talk to him, the way we live for him, the desires that we have for him, it changes everything. And I think it's interesting where Paul goes tonight. Um, just kind of a disclaimer, tonight's going to get a little uncomfortable, so get ready for that. Um, the, the Word of God has a unique way of kind of getting in our hearts and making us feel a little uncomfortable, and I think it's good. But let's go, um, let's go Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. We only got three verses, four verses to cover tonight. It says, formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now, we got we to gotta put this in context because it's kind of confusing to understand what he's saying to the Galatians here, but we, we've got some context because we've studied the entire book. We know why Paul was writing. We know what he was writing. So, so we're going to kind of break this down. We're going to look at context. But what he's really introducing tonight is the concept of idolatry, all right, idolatry. So we're going to break that down. What is it? What does it look like? And I think he gives us a clue right there in verse 8. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So he's telling the Galatians that 
that, that idolatry is slavery. It's being enslaved to things that by nature are not God. So remember last week we talked about um, that Paul said you are, you are no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves because God has adopted you. If you're in Christ, if you believe in him, if you've placed your faith in him, you are no longer a slave. You are a son. But what he's saying here is that uh, formerly, uh, so back then, you were enslaved to things that were not gods. Now, what were those things? We're going to kind of look at that. Um, many of the Galatians were enslaved literally to pagan religions. So a lot of them were kind of had the, adopted the Greek religion. So you, you talk about um, all the different Greek gods. If you studied that in school, you have Poseidon, the god of the sea, and all these different things. So the idea was, if you were a farmer, you would pray to the god of the weather, right? You want to get rain in the, in the rainy season, and you want to have um, dry times where you can harvest. So you pray to that god, and you hope that if you do certain things, you can appease that god so that he will grant you um, good crops so that you can sell those crops, have money, support the family, the whole deal. If you were a woman and you wanted to be beautiful, you prayed to the, god of, uh, to the goddess of beauty. So if you did certain things, if you prayed to her, if you appeased her, um, she would grant you beauty. So that's kind of one aspect of what Paul is talking about here, um, because some of the Galatians were literally in pagan religions, in idol worship. They were worshiping other gods with a lowercase g, things that, that people kind of believed were gods, and if we just do these things, then, then um, the gods will be happy with us. So it's easy to kind of see how these things are idols. And Paul was saying that you were formerly, the Galatians were enslaved to those things. Whatever we worship, that's what we're enslaved to, okay? So, so make no mistake about it. If you love Jesus, if you're in Christ, you're a slave of Christ. And the Bible actually says that too. You're, you're, you're transferred from being a slave to sin, and now you are a slave to Christ. And, and, uh, and so I find that an interesting concept in the Bible. Um, so, slavery, uh, so idolatry is first slavery to things that are not gods. Look at the second um, point under that one on your outline. Uh, idolatry is also worshiping the creature and not the creator. Now, this is a tough one. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but because God, uh, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, look, look focus in real, real hard on this one. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, that's a great passage to go back. I know it's kind of long. I read the whole thing, but I wanted, to, I wanted you to see that. I wanted you to see what's happening here is Paul is describing people that um, they, they, they know God because they, the, the Bible talks about God writing eternity on our hearts, and the Bible talks about the fact that we can kind of perceive that there's a God um, because of his creation, right? The creation is beautiful. You go outside, you look at a, a Florida sunset when the clouds are all in the, in the, the pink 
uh, sun is coming out, and you, that's beautiful, right? We look at that, and we say, man, how can, how can people say there's not a creator? That's beautiful. So we can kind of see God through some of the things he's made. They are a reflection of him. And what he's saying is that these people, um, they began to worship the creation rather than the creator. They began to worship good things, the things that were not inherently bad, things that were maybe good things initially, all right? But, but then um, they became so ultimate in their lives, they became more important than God, and that's um, idolatry. So, so this means that good things um, that we turn into ultimate things um, can be idols. Let me give you some examples. Money. I mean, that's a pretty big one, right? Is money inherently bad? I mean, is that, a, is that an evil thing? All right, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, not that money itself is, but uh, we got to be careful with money because that, that's kind of a tricky one. But, but if I have money, that's not a, a bad thing, right? Some of your parents are businessmen, doctors, lawyers. They're out in the world. They're making money, and, and they support you, and amen to that, right? But when money becomes ultimate, when money becomes our pursuit, when we put everything we have into that, when that's our entire desire and we're consumed by it, money becomes our God. Let me give you another example. Um, this is a big one. Uh, approval, all right? Particularly parental approval. We want to get approved by our parents, right? The Bible, and here's the thing. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. So that's actually a command. That's, a, that's, a, that's one of the big 10, too. So that's a pretty big one. That's pretty important. Honor your father and mother. So we want their approval. We want to do things that honor them. But when that becomes ultimate, when you do everything you do, all of your waking hours, everything, you're, you're disappointed, you're, you're depressed when they don't approve of you, and when they do approve of you, that, that just completes you. That's everything you are, everything you're striving for. That's idolatry. Here's a, another one, religion. Again, are we religious? I mean, we come to church. We, we, we believe in some kind of, some form of organized religion, however you define that word. Um, Christianity is a religion. It's not a bad thing, but but when you say that my religion, because I go to church, because I go to a Baptist church, because I go to a Methodist church, because I'm in church three times a week, because I'm in church four times a week, because I serve at the children's home, because I do these things, that's how I get my salvation. That's my approval from God. That's idolatry. It sounds familiar to probably something that we've studied before. This leads me to that third uh, point there under that one. Moralism is idolatry. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Um, I, would actually, I would actually change the name. You know those headings there um, weren't originally in the text. Um, I would actually call it the story of the two sons, all right? So we're going to talk about moralism, all right? Moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to patterns of behavior, so how I act, the things I do. So if, if we look at the story of the two sons in Luke chapter 15, um, you know the story. So the wayward son comes to the father and he says, hey, give me my inheritance. You're basically dead to me. I want the money. I want to go blow it. I don't want to be a part of your family. So just give me the money and I'm going to go. So the father says, okay. He goes, he squanders it. He ends up eating with the pigs. He says, you know what? It's kind of a bad deal. The servants in my father's house were treated better. So I'm going to come back. So he comes back and he says, dad, I've messed up and, and just treat me like a servant. At least then I'll have food. Okay. So the father, what does he do? He, he embraces him, he takes off his, his ring, and he puts it on his finger, and that was a sign back then of, hey, you are in, you are back in, no conditions. He puts the robe on him, he kills the fattened calf. I mean, he has a party. I mean, that, make no mistake about it, the father throws a party. What happens to the other son? He stays outside because he's jealous, right? He says, Dad, I, I've, I've kept all of your laws since I was a kid. I, I've done these things, I deserve this. I, I'm doing these things, and I continue to do these things, so I deserve this. And we see in that the two different forms of idolatry that are happening there. You see that? The one son that, that, that squandered the inheritance, he was chasing after things of the world, money, 
women, reckless living, all these things. That's what he was chasing. Now, the other son was chasing moralism. He was chasing the law. He said, I've done these things, and this is what should complete me. This is why the father should be happy with me. So you see that? You see the, the, the both ends of the spectrum there? So I, I think it's interesting what Paul says here, because we've already talked about the outright idolatry of the Galatians, right? Some of them were serving just weird gods. Like, I mean, this is like something you see on a on a horror movie, and, and look, at, look at what Paul says in, back in Galatians. Um, all right. He says but in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? Okay, so we've talked about the Greek gods a little bit, and what we need to really identify and accept is the fact that there are um, some, some dark forces out there, right? So why are we drawn into these? I mean, it's almost Halloween. We're drawn into these kind of these horror movies that some of them are pretty real, right? Like this paranormal activity stuff. I'm not saying that's all real, but I'm saying we're kind of drawn into that because there's some kind of weird, demonic, like supernatural aspect of it, right? So we need to understand that demonic forces are real, Idol worship is real. There are literally um, things that are not gods that people are worshiping. But I think it's interesting what Paul says here. Look at verse 10. So he's just talking about idol worship, literally the pagan um, religions that they were in. And then he says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, why is that important? Because this is referring to the Jewish customs in the Mosaic law. All right? So some of these people were, were, not, were not blatantly worshiping the Greek gods, the pagan idols. What he's saying here is that they were engaged in idolatry, but you people that are following the law, you're engaged in just the same kind of idolatry. So, so now that God has known you, now that you're known by God, you're going back to the same idols that you had before because you're trying to keep his approval. You're trying to earn his approval by following the law. Now that's idolatry. That's a tough one for us to swallow, Right? We get that the fact that, you know, if they're worshiping these Greek gods, that's, that's idol worship for sure. That's weird stuff. But what Paul is saying is it's the same kind of idolatry if you're over here worshiping the law, trying to reach um, the approval with God through the law, trying to, to earn his acceptance by the law. That's idolatry. This is crucial for us to understand. If, if, if you are trying to observe the law to get right with God, it's the same as worshiping false idols. So, Let's just talk real frankly here. Let's just be honest, and, and you can talk about this in your D groups if you want. Some of you are in here tonight because you think that by being here, you're, you're going to be in right standing with God. Some of you are, are, are in Sunday school and church, and, and you're here tonight, and you're serving, and you're doing these different things, and, and those aren't inherently bad things. Those are good things that God has given us. He's given us the church. He's given us um, the, the family of God to come and be a part of. But some of you are in here tonight thinking that because you do those things, God is going to approve of you. Because you do those things, God is going to accept you into his family. Because you do those things, God is going to say, okay, now that you've done those things, you can be my son. And, and if you're in that place tonight, I just want to lovingly, um, as your pastor, say to you that, that, that you're worshiping idols. It's, it's idolatry. That, that's why so many people, you see people that, I mean, I guarantee you here in about um, a couple of months when we have our Christmas Eve service, that thing's going to be packed out, right? And then a few months after that, we're going to have 
um, our Easter service, right? And there's going to be um, tons of people. We may have to bring in some extra seats, and, and people are going to come in. But, but that's why so many people do that, because they feel that, you know, if I just come twice a year, Christmas and Easter, those are kind of the two big uh, Jesus holidays. I mean, he, I think he was involved in both of them. So if I just come um, twice a year, all right, I can check that off the list, and I can appease that God. You see how similar that is to the pagan idol worship that Paul was talking about? If I just come and, and appease this God, just make him happy, I just need to show up a couple of times a year, make this God happy, then everything's going to be okay for the rest of the year. And it's all good to go, no worries, and, and that's idolatry. It's the same thing that happens when we, um, when we think that um, we're saved because we've walked an aisle and we've prayed some kind of weird prayer. And I'm not saying that if that's your experience that, that you're not saved, but what I'm saying is if there's no heart change, if there's no affection for Jesus, if there's no love for him, if there's no desire to read his word, if there's no desire to seek after him, if there's no heart change in you that says, I love Jesus, I love what he's done for me, he has given me his life, his death, his resurrection, if there is none of that, then our, our words are empty, our, our, our words are empty, and, and you don't get saved by walking an aisle, you get saved by the transforming love of Jesus Christ and, and just submitting to Him and, and really just yielding to Him. So what does this mean? It's not your effort that's going to save you, it's Jesus. What, is this, what, do we, what do we do in that? So you're telling me it's not Jesus, so what, do I just sit back and throw up my hands and say, there's nothing I can do? No, what you do is you stop trying on your own. You see how that's active? You see how you're yielding, you're saying, God, I, I've been trying on my own, this is my testimony, I tried on my own for 18 years, all right, and that didn't work, and then I swung over here and tried to build another identity on my own, and, and by the time I was done, I was exhausted, and I just said, God, I'm done with this, I'm stopping, I'm yielding, I'm done trying to do it on my own, I'm yielding to you, I'm giving my life to you, I'm placing my life at your feet, and that's what we need to do. We yield, we stop trying, we commit our lives to his rule. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul has been saying that the entire letter. If you've missed that, you've missed the point of the entire letter. But Paul is saying that law observance as a means of salvation is just as bad as worshiping some kind of false idol, some kind of weird God that's out there. Now listen, the devil, the devil is happy tonight. If you are a quote-unquote outwardly um, religious kid, all right, that if you come in here and you do these things, but if you never know Jesus, if you never love him, if your life has never been transformed by him, if you've never placed your faith in him, that's a win for the devil, all right? I'm just going to be honest. He, he loves that. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, the white devil of spiritual sin is far more dangerous than the black devil of carnal sin because the wiser, the better men are without Christ, the more they are likely to ignore and oppose the gospel. You hear, hear what he's saying there? He's saying if you're, a, if you're in this camp and you're a kind of a, just a dirty, licentious sinner and you're like the first son who kind of went out and squandered his inheritance, you know what happened to him is he realized, you know what, this is not really fulfilling. This is, I got to go back to my father because I need something better than this. But if you're over here in this camp where you're just stuck in moralism and you're thinking you can do it on your own and you're thinking the things you do make you right with God and, and the things you don't do, the things you abstain from make God happy with you, if you're in this camp, you, you don't know you need the gospel. You don't know you need Jesus. You don't have a love for Jesus because you don't need him. That's idolatry. That's worshiping works-based salvation. That's worshiping yourself. What you're doing in that moment is really you're saying that, that you can do it so that you're good enough to do it. So what you're saying is you believe in the law and you believe in your ability to meet the law. Okay, so that's 
idol worship. And really the last thing there, Martin Luther always says, is idolatry is the sin underneath every sin. And I think this one's going to help some of you tremendously because some of you are, are just stuck in this where you're, you've got this habitual sin, right, this thing you keep doing over and over and you maybe you, you kind of grasp onto it real tough and like Bill says, you kind of white knuckle it and you go for a couple weeks and then you fall and then maybe you pick yourself up, you go for a couple days and then you fall and then you pick it and you're like, I, I just can't break this. This is an endless, vicious cycle and I can't break it. How do I do it? Well, here's something that can help you if you understand idolatry as the sin underneath every sin. So what are you worshiping? And we're going to talk about that more in just a little bit, but, but what are you worshiping? Are you doing that sin because it gets you more of someone? Are you doing that sin because it gives you more comfort? Are you doing that sin because it earns you the approval of a certain group of people? What are you worshiping? What's underneath there? What are the roots? That's the sin under every sin. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? I love that Paul kind of adds that little caveat in there. He says, now that you've, uh, now that you've come to know God, or wait, actually that you've come to be known by God. So what we got to understand in the Bible, to be known is really an intimate term. It really means to be loved by, right? So, so to know someone in the Bible was just a very intimate way to say, I know you, I know who you are, I know every detail about you, and I love you. Anyways, and that's what God says about you. He says, uh, I mean, Romans 5, 8, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God says to you, I know you. I know every detail, and, and I know you at your worst, and I've seen you at your worst, and that's actually when I saved you, when you were at your worst. And so, so why would you turn back to, to these things that can't complete you? Because I know you. That's what he's saying here. Um, there's another parable uh, that's probably pretty popular, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. All right, we're going to see in this parable, um, Tim Keller says this, what makes, a person, what makes a person a Christian is not so much your knowing God, but his knowing of you. Now, why is that? Let's think about it. Because our knowing of God fluctuates so much, right? Our love for God fluctuates so much. I mean, some days I wake up and I'm like, man, I'm just killing it. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm getting in the Word and, you know, I'm reading for an hour or whatever it is, 30 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, you know. I mean, whatever it is, I'm killing it and I'm praying and I'm just going throughout the day and I'm feeling like, man, I'm just, I'm knocking it out of the park today. And then the next day um, I wake up and I'm like, wow, I got really no desire today. And, and that's kind of the way the Christian life works, doesn't it? I mean, unfortunately, some, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we have to admit that there's just this kind of weird thing where some days we feel like we're killing it and some days we don't. And some days are up and some days are down and, and some months are up and then some days are down. And it's kind of this two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, right? So our love for God fluctuates so much, but God's love for us never fluctuates. The Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, if you want to turn there, feel free to do it. Um, Luke chapter 10, not going to read the whole thing, but, but basically uh, you can go back and read it later on. Um, basically what's happening here is you have a lawyer asking Jesus a question, and that's always a dangerous thing. If you're a lawyer in here, I'm not, uh, or an aspiring lawyer, I'm not knocking it. But, but what, what do lawyers do? They kind of ask the prying questions. They kind of ask the leading questions. Like they're, when, the, when, when a lawyer asks a question, they're not really asking that question. They're kind of asking the next question, right? They're kind of thinking two steps ahead of you. But what the lawyer says to Jesus is, hey, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, okay. And Jesus, by the way, is way more skillful than 
the lawyer. So we're talking about salvation here, eternal life, right? We're talking about getting into the family of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's salvation. And then Jesus tells him, uh, he says, okay, let me ask you a question. What's in the law and how do you read it? And the guy says, well, he's a lawyer, so he knows the law. He says, you just got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's it. Do it. The guy's kind of taken aback. He's like, wait, now I was trying to trick you here. You, you do realize that, right? So I was trying to trick you. And, and, and so the lawyer says, uh, okay, what, what must I do? And Jesus says, you just got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you're good to go. And love your neighbor as yourself. So just go do that. Now, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan why? Not, to, not primarily to illustrate that you and I are supposed to go across the street and help people and pick them up, although that's a good thing. But Jesus in that story is the good Samaritan because Jesus is the only one who can love the Lord your God with all his heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What he's illustrating in that story is that you and I are like the Levites and the Pharisees, the guys that were um, walking along the road and said, there's a guy that's beat up over there. I should probably help him, but I got stuff to do, so I'm going to keep on going. That's you and me. We are not the good Samaritan in that story. Jesus is. So what Jesus is telling the lawyer is that I am the only one who can love God wholly, fully, perfectly all the time, and that's why you need me. Remember, he asked about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, all you got to do is just be perfect. So what was he doing? He was pointing him to his need of Christ. Remember, the law always does that. The law always points us to Jesus. It, it shows our sin, it exposes, it gets in there, it diagnoses, and then it points to Christ, and that's the function of the law. And your relationship with, with uh, God is based on Christ alone. And then the third thing um, under that, Christ is our identity. I mean, he just is. We talked about it last week. For all of those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We talked about the analogy of wearing Christ, literally um, the clothes that you wear define you in a lot of cases, Right? So you wear Christ, you put on Christ, he is your new identity. Let me give you an illustration like this. We talked about this a few weeks ago, all right? So I, um, I, I want to move to a different address, right? So I'm, I'm going to move, and uh, actually uh, I, I decided I already moved. I moved yesterday, okay? So today I had to go home for lunch, and I, I, I started driving home, and I'm driving up north on South Florida Avenue, all right? So I moved to the other side of the... Uh, the South Florida. So I'm on this side, and then I move to this side. So I'm on the left, and then I move to the right. But as I'm driving home today for lunch, um, I accidentally turned left, right? So I turned, I, I turned towards the wrong house. Why? Because I, I was thinking I lived there. I forgot that I have a new address. I forgot that my position has changed. My address has changed. Now, this is the same thing as having Christ as your identity. So what happens is when you sin, when you begin to worship idols, when you begin to go back to those things, like Paul said, the weak and worthless things, is you're actually turning left when you should be turning right. You're forgetting your address. You, God has taken you from here. All right, Colossians 1 says he has, he has transferred you from the domain of darkness. He has placed you in the kingdom of his beloved son. So he has changed your address. He's taken you from here, and he's put you here. Now, what happens when we engage in idolatry, when we engage in sin, is we're turning left when we should turn right because all we got to do is remember, I, wait, wait, Jesus, Jesus moved me. Jesus put me over here. I don't want to go over here. I don't want to drive over here. This, this home is better. My new home is better, and that's... Uh, that, that's identity. That's our address. He has changed us. He has made us new. He has given us a new address. So um, well, let's just talk real practically. How do we uproot our idols? How 
that we uproot our idols. The first thing is we just need to ask God to reveal them to us. I mean, 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, and, and, and if, you, if you're come before God, and if you're honest, you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. So, so even if you don't know what your idols are, what, what that verse is communicating is a posture of confession, like, God, I've got this weird thing I'm doing, and I can't stop doing it, and I need your help. Um, I need you to forgive me, and I need you to help me uncover what's underneath there. And, and, and the Bible says he's faithful to do that. He's faithful to, to not only forgive you, but to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to get in there, to diagnose, to figure out what's wrong, to reveal that to you. So we need to ask him. The second thing is uh, the gospel word. That's the scriptures. I, I like to put gospel before everything in this series. If you haven't noticed, it's kind of like how Bill um, likes to have every point start with a P in his current sermon series. Um, it's just a thing we do as, as preachers. Um, but really, that's just the scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen to that again. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God is gracious to reveal those things in our hearts. Remember, the law is a diagnostic. The law is not a bad thing, all right? I don't want you to get that idea out of this whole series. The law is not bad. It's just, it's not sufficient to save us. The law tells us what's wrong. So how are we going to know what's wrong? We read the law. There's a lot of things in this book that says, do this, don't do this. Those aren't just in there for fun. God actually wants us to do those things. Honor your father and mother. He wants you to do that. Don't lie. He doesn't want you to lie. He doesn't want you to murder. He wants you to love him. He doesn't want you to lust. He wants you to do these things. He wants you to not do these things. Those are commands. Those are things God wants us to do. But the only way we know how to do them is to read the Word. And what's funny about that is as you read the Word, we talked about this last week. There's a word in Christianity that we're kind of scared of. It's the Holy Spirit, but it is part of the Trinity, okay? So it is God. So as you read the Word, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and it's kind of, you know, this is, I can see myself in this passage. Like, for me, it's Romans 7. Like, when Paul is like, you know, um, I'm trying to do good things, but I can't do good things, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying not to do bad things, but I keep doing bad things. This is Paul saying that. Go back and look in Romans 7. And Paul's like, I just, I don't know what's going on with me. I keep stumbling, I keep falling, I can't do the things I want to do, and I can't stop doing the things I don't want to do. And I read that, and I'm like, man, that's me. I mean, that's, that's me right there. I can't stop sinning. I want to, but I can't. And then he goes on, all right, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the glorious news. Some of you are stuck in Romans 7. You haven't gone to Romans 8. You're stuck there and you're saying, I'm just struggling in this sin. I can't, I can't overcome it. How do I do it? You're stuck in Romans 7 and you haven't turned the page to Romans 8 where it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we uproot our idols? We read this book. It's important. God gave it to us. The Bible says it's, it's got everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. It doesn't answer every question. It doesn't, um, it doesn't get in there and just, if you've got a situation, you can't just flip there and say, okay, I'll do that. But what it does, it's, it's a story. It's a picture, right? And it points to someone. Who does it point to? It's kind of the main church answer, so you can say it. All right, it points to Jesus. So if you want to know how to get better, if you want to know how to uproot your idols, the Bible says, fix your eyes on who? Jesus. How do you do that? You read his word. 
You begin to know him. You learn who he is. There's a picture of his life in the Gospels. You read that. You read what Paul writes about him. You read, you get to know him. People, sometimes I, I, it, it just, it astounds me how much people say, how much you guys will say, how much I will say. You know, I just want to know Jesus more, but we're, we, we're, we don't read the book. We're reluctant to read the book. Yeah, I want to know Jesus. I don't want to sin anymore. I want to stop the things I'm doing, um, but I just don't have time to read the Bible. I just don't, I mean, I, you know, that doesn't make any sense. If you want to know Jesus, if, if you want to know about your salvation, if, if you want to know about what he's done in your heart, you've got to read the word. And God is faithful to, to give you a love for that, to give you a desire for that. The more you read it, the more you love it. The more you read it, the more you identify with it, right? The more you read it, the more you see Jesus. And that's the point. God's word exposes our sin and it points to the solution. Let me say that again. God's word exposes our sin and it points to the solution. Now, if it only exposed our sin, if it only diagnosed us, if it only condemned us, I wouldn't want to read it, would you? I mean, I'm not going to go read a book every day that's like, man, you're bad. Good morning. Hey, Alex, good morning. You're bad. You're bad every day. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. There's no hope. But that's not the only thing the Bible does. It, It diagnoses our sin, and it points to the hope we have in Christ. You have to read the word. The second thing is the gospel community. Gospel community. That's us in this room. That's the family of God. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, the work that, the work that God does in your heart, it's personal, it's intimate, it's one-on-one, but, but that, it doesn't stop there, all right? He, he's, he, you see, did you see it in the text? He's purifying for himself a people. That's all of us. That's you and me. That's us together. We are working together. We serve together. We read together. We study together. We pray together. We, uh, we, we eat together. We live together. We confess to each other. That's the people of God. That's the function of the church. And, and listen, um, if you're just isolated, if you're just out here on an island, it's not going to be very easy for someone to see your idols, right? Like, let me give you this illustration. Like, um, when I was a single guy, um, I had a roommate, and he was really dirty, and so he just kind of stayed in his room, and I just kind of stayed in my room, and we were buddies, but we didn't have that close of a relationship because, I mean, I just, he was just dirty, and I was always doing his dishes and things like that, so uh, we, I mean, we're bros, but we weren't like super close, and he wasn't going to tell me, hey man, I think you're stumbling here, I think you're idolizing this, I think you're worshiping this, but about a year and a half ago, I got married, and um, one day that'll happen to you, uh, God willing, and and it'll change the way you see everything. Because now I'm living in the same room with a lady, all right? And, and let me tell you, there's nothing that shows me my selfishness more than living in close quarters with a lady. Because I thought my roommate was dirty. Guess what? Dirty, all right? Okay? There's nothing that, that shows me that more than being in close relationship close quarters, our hearts are open to each other, we're telling each other things, she sees things in my life, she tells me things, hey, watch out for this, I try to watch out for her, we talk about things, it's not perfect, we don't get it right all the time, but that's 
community. And that's a picture. Marriage, get it, is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what we're supposed to do. So that's the community. This is, this is, here's what it boils down to, and we're almost done, guys. Gospel community just tells us, it begs us to be open, right? It just, I mean, that's what David did in Psalm uh, 51. He said, God, I know my sin. I'm going to confess my sin. All right, my sin is ever before me. He, he wasn't ashamed. He knew it. He confessed it. That's what Paul did in Romans 7. He confessed it. He put it out there. Don't be afraid to bring your idols to the light. So you say, well, okay, what are, what are idols and how do I identify that? We're going to close with this. Here's just a few, and I'm going to put this up on the table in the, next, in the coming days. So if you want to check this out, um, I would encourage you to do that. So how do we identify our idols? I'm not saying this is the solution, but, but here's a few. And just kind of listen to this list and see, if, this, I, see if, if you can identify with any of these things. Here's, here's one that I'll raise my hand on. This is absolutely me. Approval idolatry. Life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by people. I fall into that. Image idolatry. Life only has meaning if I, if I look a certain way, if my body looks a certain way, if I dress a certain way. Dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning if I, if I have someone there to protect me and keep me safe. Or independence idolatry. Life only has meaning if I have worth and I'm completely independent and I don't need anyone and I'm just on my own. How about materialism? Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom. You see what it is, though? Idolatry is not the surface-level sins that just kind of manifest themselves in all different ways. Idolatry is what you get your meaning from. It's what you get your worth from. What tells you or who tells you why you matter? Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, your parents. Maybe it's uh, the grades you get in school. What are the things that tell you why you matter? Because in the gospel, Jesus tells you why you matter. He says, you're a sinner and I came after you. Just like the father in the prodigal son story, he runs after both sons. He goes after both sons, and Jesus says, I tell you why you matter. We're going to move into a time with your D groups. If you're new here and you don't know what D groups are, um, just step up to the front. I'll get you to the right place. Um, and I just, I just, um, I love you guys, and, and I want you to see um, how much I love you and, and how much um, I think this text can be helpful. While it's, um, while it's uh, convicting, I think it can be helpful. Let's pray. God, you're good, and we love you, and uh, we just want to glorify you. And so I pray that you'd be faithful to reveal to us our idols. I know that I have idols in my heart. Um, That's something that that I struggle with daily, and I just pray you would reveal that. Reveal that to these students, to these leaders. As they talk in their D groups, allow them to press into the community of faith and just confess that. Allow them to have a desire to read your word and allow your word to kind of um, diagnose what's going on in their hearts. And God, just be faithful to do that so that we might uproot these idols, so that we might look to you, so that we might worship you as ultimate. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.